This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Awesome. Kia ora, kia ora, Thomas. Thank you so much um, for being on the show. I've yeah, ever since I came across your TED Talk on privilege loss, I'm like, I've just got to have this human on the show um, and, and unpack privilege a little bit more with you. Um, but before we get into the meaty stuff, I would love for you to introduce yourself, um, you know, what people, communities, lands do you belong to? Um, yeah, please introduce yourself. I'm Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Sure. Kia ora, thank you, Amal. Uh, Salam alaikum. It's uh, it's a it's a real pleasure to be here. I love your show, and uh, thank you for asking me. Uh, my name is Thomas Owen. I am originally from Palmerston North in the North Island. I have lived in Wellington for for years. I've lived in Auckland uh, for a while. I lived in Spain for a while, and now I currently live in uh, Dawson City in the Yukon in Northern Canada. And this has been my home for the last permanent home for the last couple of years uh but a sort of home away from home for really the last um last couple of decades what are the lands important to me oh man i would say aotearoa is is, is super important to me and, and really feeling the pangs of missing it um in a big way but i would say the ocean uh is something that i would miss more than the land the smell of the ocean we're a long way from the sea at the moment uh but these lands up here uh which are vast the Yukon is vast. It's about twice the size of Aotearoa in terms of land mass. It has about 35,000 people living here. So there's a lot of space, a lot of forest, and um, and it's always with you, and it, it's it's the feature of the place. So that's meaning an awful lot to me now. Uh, the communities, the community here uh, has, has been absolutely wonderful it's a it's a you could not live up here without community and that's both the Trondok Quechan the first nation uh, of this area the Dawson City community um but my my friends you know thank thankfully for the internet uh through all this time keeping keeping in touch with uh, friends in Aotearoa has been a huge huge meaningful for me as well and I'd like to shout out to the Quaker community uh which is uh yeah, my faith community from Aotearoa and worldwide, and to Newtown in Wellington, to the CBD in uh, Tomaki Makoto, uh, Newtown Rocksteady. Uh, <laughs> what else? The Sunday Blazers football team. I don't know. The many communities <laughs> of uh, yeah, of the world. Hey. Oh, Kiona, thank you so much, Thomas. I love that you've lived such a rich life and you can call many lands home and, you know, find belonging in many different communities as well. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. I think by sharing, you know, your, the lands and the communities that belong you belong to, we get to know a little bit more about you. Um, but I'd love to do a round of quick fire questions as well, just so we get to know a little bit more about you. Um, so you're at a party, the DJ plays blank and you are immediately on the dance floor what is that song <laughs> oh wow okay um <laughs> goodness you know uh i just got back from a few weeks in um, vancouver 
uh, it was my first time out of the out of the territory for a while, first time in a city for a while. And you know when you you're some places and the, and the same song kind of keeps playing and you really notice it. And you're like, yes. why does that song keep playing? Why does that song keep playing? And this one was was Shaka Khan, uh, Ain't Nobody. Oh, Ain't Nobody oh, Loves Me Better. I love that song and so much. Ain't Nobody <laughs> Loves Me Better. Love Me Better. You know it, yes. Yes, I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how much I loved it till, uh, till just recently. I was like, oh, my God, I love that song. And we break it down. It's perfect. Perfect song from its time. Got me on the dance floor. Uh, there and uh, some really special moments to that. So oh, might not be yes. the answer all the time, but it's the answer right now. <laughs> that is a good answer for right now. Um, another question: What are you currently unlearning? Uh, currently unlearning. Oh, um, well, I'm living. I'm living off grid at the moment um, in a little cabin in the woods, and it's been a uh, kind of a project and. Um, very much in line with the privilege loss uh, and, and the refusal of uh, consumer privileges. So I'm unlearning a lot through that and learning a lot. Uh, unlearning how to rely on the conveniences of, of consumer society. Um, so, you know, learning to kind of be, I was going to say sustaining, or um, but no, you've just. I'm just learning a lot about fixing things that are broken, building things that you need. Um, you know, where it's a pretty harsh winter up here, and and uh, you need a lot of wood. You need your water. You need um, if you want to use electronics like we're using right now, you've got to be prepared and have some way to generate electricity. And we're not always that accessible to the rest of the world. Uh, Dawson City itself uh, is not that accessible to the rest of the world and, and quite often is cut off. So that's been, um, yeah, that's been unlearning. And, and I think every day uh, there'll be, there'll be some, some, new, uh, some new challenge there. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I think if we are to ever fix this climate emergency that we're in, I think we really do need to reevaluate our relationship with consumerism because, I don't know, living in Wellington, living in the city, it's just so convenient and you kind of sometimes forget that, well, I feel like the way that you live your life, there's a direct connection with the land and you really have to foster it if you want to survive and to live. But it's so easy to get by with convenience in the city. And I think we really have to reevaluate that relationship. So thank you for bringing that to the um, forefront. Um, next hey. question. Last time you had a, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. And I wish the ground would just swallow me up moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um okay. Um gee. Goodness. You know, um well is so I'm just, this is kind of ties to the to the to the sort of lifestyle change thing. Um I'm not really that good at it. You know, I've had to learn how to do a lot of stuff that I'm not really that good at, like like chainsawing and building and um, and just getting by. And it, uh, it, one of the features of, of moving up here, um, sorry, I'm drawing a really, I, I can't answer a question directly. I'm going to give you, I'll, I'll draw a context, but I'll hopefully get to. Take me on a journey. I love me. it. Okay. Okay. I'll try my best. Um, so, and this actually goes into privilege loss. Why was I one of the things I was interested in privilege loss was um, 
to move up here, firstly partially and then completely, um, was I was suddenly hyper aware of moving at, at what I felt was like kind of the, the prime of life, you know, or at least um, I'm 40 years old and I felt like, okay, someone at 40 should be pretty much, you know, kind of in command of, of what they're doing with things. They, they should have learned how to kind of do this stuff. And especially I've got a young daughter and I want to pass on my knowledge to her and I want to be a meaningful part of my community and contribute and all of that. And then uh, one of the things I found really difficult in, in migrating here was um, I felt like I was uniquely inept to live in this space, you know, just, just not having the skills. Uh, I was living in Auckland at the time, you know, really good at uh, living in a city, you know, I cracked that, you know, living in a city, I could do it. Um, really good at all the stuff that involved, but living in a small town and then living in a, in a cabin in the woods and in an in a extreme cold climate, um, doing these things, I felt like each day was a mystery. I was just encountering things I didn't understand all the time. You're standing out in the in the forest and I'm, I'm following some tracks and I'm trying to find a way across a river that's frozen and the tracks seem to go straight into the river and I just don't understand how this ice forms and I don't understand how this tree is living in, you know, minus 40 degrees. And I don't understand how this car is functioning. And so to get by, I meant constantly learning all these things. And I found it kind of, kind of a bit of a burden, a bit crushing, um, a bit disappointing because I wanted to be able to pass on my knowledge to my daughter, but we're wandering around in the forest, you know, and, and it's kind of the blind leading the blind. And um, so in answer to your question, embarrassing things, it was just constant, constantly embarrassing things. I'm trying to chainsaw down a tree and I'm, and I'm making a mess of it and, and I'm embarrassing myself and then the chainsaw breaks and then I embarrass myself <laughs> trying to fix it. And then I'm trying to learn to ice skate and I'm embarrassing myself falling down and I'm trying to go, you know, drive on ice and I'm embarrassing myself by spinning out and crashing into a ice bank. And, and I'm just feeling like, gee, I'm not quite fulfilling the kind of role that I would think of someone at the stage in their life of, of being able to do basic things. So um, why I'm saying this is um, uh, I noticed actually, I was thinking on this yesterday, I was driving onto the ferry. There's a river that separates the town of Dawson to, to the, um, the forest and, and the area known as West Dawson, where I am right now. And the river's not frozen yet. It'll probably do so in a, in, over the next uh, couple of months. And I'm driving onto the ferry and I hadn't connected. I'm in a truck, I'm in a ute, and I've got a, a trailer full of heavy things on the back. And I'm driving this. And, and by the way, many, 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 many embarrassing times trying to drive a, a ute with a trailer on and reversing that. And <laughs> but anyway, so we're driving on the ferry and I hadn't secured the, the trailer correctly. So the trailer fell off as I'm driving on. There's heaps oh, of people no. around. Um, and, you know, the ferry people, they've got to, we all get out, we've got to get out, we've got to put it on, got my daughter in the car and all of this. And, um, but the thing was, once it was on, we're driving away, and, well, we're sailing away on the boat. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't embarrassed, that my, my cheeks weren't red, that I didn't have that sense of people watching and judging, that I, that I really honestly did not care. And I realized then, I was like, wow, that, have, has, have I somehow managed to get over like just constantly being embarrassed by doing stuff badly all the time because at a certain point you know you kind of do there's only so many times you can get embarrassed by not being able to do something because you're not that suited to the environment mm -hmm. and I realized have I have I I don't know if I've vanquished that you know beaten that dragon as it were but I just at least felt like it was kind of great because you know embarrassment it's fun it's 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 self-deprecating. It's good. We can bond over it, but at the same time, 
it's death to learning. If you're embarrassed about doing something, if that embarrassment is like the feature and you're trying to learn a new skill, whether it's language, sport, how to do a thing, chainsawing, cars, whatever it is, if you're embarrassed to go out there and make that mistake, um, you, you're shooting yourself on your foot for how you got to learn. And I, I kind of lost that luxury because I just had to keep learning stuff. And to be honest, for a year, for a couple of years, um, it was a burden. It sucked. People would come and look at what I'm building, you know, and, and laugh because it, it was a bit a bit rubbish because, you know, I'm, I'm just doing it. I'm freestyling it, trying to figure yeah. it out. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, you're a bit embarrassed after a while, but then you're like, but I, I got to do this because I need a place to live. I got to do this because I need to drive this truck on here. I, I don't have the choice. I don't have the luxury of um, being embarrassed right now. So, um, yeah, I think I feel lucky for that. I'm grateful for that, actually, to be living in a place now where people don't really care that much. There's not enough people around. You know, uh, it's kind of no one's going to laugh at you. And if they do, whatever, just get on the thing and go. Hey, you need to live. You're right. You need to live. You need to get by. These things need to be done. It doesn't matter what they look like. You can do the thing. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability. I think whenever we do talk about embarrassing moments in our life, it just like paints our humanity even more. Um, and so now we get a, a better picture of who Thomas is. So thank you for sharing and also just <laughs> dropping a life lesson in there as well. So philosophical about embarrassment. It really is the, the death to learning. And we're so scared to make mistakes because of that shame and that embarrassment. So you're so right. Thank you so much, Thomas. Um, and last quick fire question. If you could be any object slash human, what or who would you be and why? Oh, a tree. I'd be a tree. I'd be, um, I'm looking at a bunch of spruce trees at the moment, so I'd be a spruce tree. Uh, these are called drunken spruce, they're black spruce. They're, they're kind of stunted spruce. But they're beautiful spruce trees. Oh, yeah, I'd definitely be a tree. Um, Why is that? I'm reading right now, like <laughs> a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people might be familiar with Suzanne Simard and her book, uh, Finding the Mother Tree. Um, it's a book I've, I've been reading recently all about how trees communicate together through um, through fungi, through um, vast networks oh. of uh, rhizomes and what do they call it? Um, mycelium. And, uh, and, you know, as a, as a communication or formerly a communication scholar, I'm fascinated by this. This is great. This is the, this is the tree internet, the forest internet. <laughs> and she uh, writes about the mother trees and all of this. And I, it's changed the way I look at the trees and it really makes me wonder what that experience is like um, for them, you know, because it, it's just that there, there's an intelligence there beyond, I think, what, um, what, what uh, you know, we know it, we feel it, right? Tree hugging is a thing. You can feel it. You go hug a tree, you feel it. But there's, there's so much more in it. I'm super curious now. I want to know what they, I want to know what they know. Oh, me too. Now that you've said that, oh my goodness, that would be so interesting to be a tree and kind of figure out how this this I like how you said tree internet, how that would work. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at trees in a different way now. That's so interesting. I don't know about the fungi and that's how they communicate. Cool answer. Thank you so much, Thomas. Um, you'd be filled into thinking that we had to talk about trees and whatnot, but we actually had to talk about <laughs> privilege loss today. Um, and before we really talk about privilege loss and what that looks like and what that even means, I'd love to know from your point of view as someone who has studied privilege 
what does that word mean to you? Um, how would you define privilege to begin mm. with? Mm. Yeah, right on. Um, yeah, so I've had to define it in a very particular way uh, in order to kind of have something concrete, you know, to, to build the research around. Um, but it's really, it's a tricky one because it's one of those words that's become really diffuse. You know, we use it in a lot of different ways. So um, I'll, I'll tell you the way I define it and maybe we could look at some of the other ways that we people use it because all of them are legitimate. I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, mm -hmm. but um, you know, as a word, it, it's very much a social construction. So it only gets used, you know, and, and the different meanings that we want to give it. But for my research, the way I define it, it's a, um, it's the unshared allocation of resources. So symbolic or material resources that, uh, and the privileges are the, the rules, the social rules, that determine the allocation of these resources. They could be formal rules like law, or they could be informal rules and norms. Um, but privilege, which you break it down, it means privacy plus ledge, so private law. It's referring to the laws, the norms that determine the unequal and unshared uh, allocation of resources, symbolic or material. And here's the last part, importantly, I'd say, um, they're not allocated to individuals, to individual people, but they're allocated to identity categories that a given individual may or may not possess. So white privilege, male, you know, male privilege, uh, Christo, you know, Christian privilege, whatever it might be, it's to an identity category, not to that person, but a person might have uh, that identity category. Thank you for. Like, Sorry, it's not very concise. That. No, no, no. I think it's nice to have a very concrete definition like that because that will be our handrails as we kind of go through this conversation together. Because you're so right, it is used in so many different contexts. And I think it can be very overwhelming actually kind of entering this conversation if you just don't have that basic foundation of. Um, of what privilege is because it's used in so many different so many different ways like in my life specifically you know there's that obvious or lack of privilege I suppose of being a, like a black Muslim woman in Aotearoa but even within my community of of the Somali community there's so many different privileges you know there's privilege if you have a lighter skin tone as opposed to someone who has a darker skin tone and and when you get into really nuanced conversations like that it's just so helpful to have a really grounding understanding of what that word privilege even means to begin with um so now that you've kind of defined what privilege is growing up what was your understanding like specifically of that word privilege and how did that kind of evolve into you now researching it mm, okay um so i'll answer that but just listening to you there um made me think yeah and another really important to add on to that to the definition of it was um it's contextual uh changes in um in time and space in location and across time and it can be very minute uh, colorism and skin tone privilege, really interesting one, because, you know, you might be in one context and darker tone of skin is going to be beneficial, different contexts, a lighter tone, they're constantly changing. Um, it was what makes it a really interesting field. And I think, um, yeah, wanting to have, like I said, a handrail definition to anchor that, to be able to look at that really minute ways that privilege is going to be there. Um, so how did I get into it? Well, or what did it mean to me growing up? I don't think I was particularly aware of the word growing up. I don't think uh, it, it was around. Um, you know, 
for me and the and the way I just define privilege, uh, which is not you know I don't create this; it's kind of extrapolated from from a whole lot of re uh, research and literature on it um, by a lot of uh, a lot of great scholars. So what it's really talking about though is inequality. I mean that's it. You know, privilege and equality are just this this two different ways of looking at the same concept. So in that sense, when I was growing up, the the awareness I had was more about inequality. Uh, and then later on in life, really in adult life, this idea of privilege being being another way of looking at that inequality came into my uh, into my worldview. Um, but growing up, yeah, growing up. Uh, reasonably aware of inequality I think just like a lot of people from um, having diverse life experiences uh, you know seeing different people whether it was family members or friends you know having having different ways of life to you uh, whether they were rich or poor or racially different or um, you know gender was a big one in our household my mum was uh, was was a committed feminist and would host you know women's group meetings in the house so I'd sit there as a little kid you know Eating a bag of rations, you know, listening to a bunch of <laughs> bunch of feminists sitting around the sit around the kitchen table, you know, having having debates. So that was really informative about inequalities there. And I think my dad was um, he was elderly too. He had me at forty nine, uh, not super elderly, but you know, he was in his sixties when I was kind of a you know kid. And he he got laid off uh, from his job in the nineteen eighty seven um, mm -hmm. kind of crash market crash in in, in New Zealand. And I think the neoliberal changes after that, he was really interested in. He had been a Marxist when he was younger and and, and uh, in his earlier life. So he still he was interested in the class divisions and the class uh, changes that was happening in Aotearoa from 87 through the early 90s. And he'd talk about it a lot and would drive around the countryside visiting places, um, you know, small towns that had had, uh, had the, um, you know, the factory moved or the, freezing work to shut down or something like that and, and we talk about it so um and then i went to a pretty affluent school in, in palmerston north so some some kids would be living in million dollar homes and you'd go play on their tennis court other kids would be living in a state house and you'd go you know steal some booze off their parents and and you know sell it on the street corner with your mates for 50 cents you know a, a tiny glass or something like that so you were kind of seeing like these different walks of life and it's pretty obvious. Um, no, I wouldn't say it was. A, I'd say it wasn't obvious what was desirable or not, because what I think I came out of my childhood with was an appreciation for the time uh, and the attention that my parents had to spend with me. They were mm -hmm. split up. But dad, especially, I think being older, he had to retire. He then was on a benefit. So he was on uh, the DPB. You know, it's not just for single mums. It was for elderly men as well and uh we were spending you know half our time with dad uh house was kind of falling down you know times were tough um but i think coming out of it i really appreciated that he had time to spend with us and mm -hmm. i realized that across friends and people i'd meet whether rich or poor or or you know whatever ethnicity race religion they might be there was a real hunger there for those who didn't get a lot of time with their parents or, or with, with other, you know, adult community members. And, um, and I felt really lucky that I had, um, I did have that time. So that was kind of, you know, coming out of that and then into adult life, inequality uh, was, was a big 
social issue, one to address. I was I brought up as well in, in Quakerism and Quaker community, and as a young adult was um, active in international Quakers. So I, I, I was lucky enough to go and meet a lot of people around the world working in social justice, working in equality, working in peace issues. And it kind of struck me by my mid-20s that, um, that everyone I was meeting was, was doing amazing work, you know, working for NGOs, uh, doing activist stuff uh, out, out in the field, often in, um, often in the global south. Uh, and, and I was really inspired. I was like, hey, this, is, this, is, this seems to be the only way to do it. You've got you to make your mahi. Uh, count, you know, rather than just chasing the dollar and then, you know, do a bit of charity on the weekend. Not that, you know, people, everyone's got their own, you know, paths for for whatever merits they have. Um, but that was kind of where, where my head was at. But the, um, I was I was fortunate enough to have the opportunities of education and to get into a line of work uh, as, as an academic in, in New Zealand where you got to choose what you looked at. And there's a there's a rich strain in the social sciences of examining social inequalities, um, so it wasn't hard to to find uh, new spaces to investigate there. And I was I was looking at medicines access and and uh, especially around HIV/AIDS. Um, and you know that you were always supported to look at these issues of inequality. But I think I got to a point where I was kind of dissatisfied with that because it felt so impersonal. And I think. Mm-hmm. This is when I kind of got into the idea of privilege because it it personalizes it. We're all connected and privileged. There's not a person out there, even though they might like to pretend it, but there's, there's no one out there who has no experience of privilege or privilege loss uh, in their lived experience, their embodied experience of, of social reality. And But it, privilege it forces us to look at inequality linking the personal experience to the social structure. And I think that is really key because so much social analysis is looking at maybe the social structure but not personalizing it a lot of maybe psychology or, or the interior sciences might look at you know our, our lived experience of something but not connected to social structure but i felt looking at privilege you, you really have to look at both and and then you see okay this is we're, we're we've got a commonality here we're connected here uh, by the way we experience these social structures that shape our opportunities in life and how it feels when it hits us. Wow, you really, the way that you break down privilege and especially in connection um, to equality or inequity, that was that was really, really insightful for me, just the way that you put those two words together. Um, because in my head, I'm like, yes, there is a relationship there, but I've always found it really, really hard to articulate it. So to kind of frame it in a way where it's, you know, two sides of the same coin I think that's very very interesting and also the fact that you said privilege does give us the opportunity to make these bigger conversations around all the isms and all the phobias makes it very personal I think that is so important like I've always said that you know if you want to be an ally or if you want to really step into this conversation you actually need to know who you are as a person first and that comes with acknowledging your privilege and um interrogating where that's come from what it means to you um because if you don't do that you're not really fully in in you know whatever conversation it is that you want to be a part of um so that's so interesting thank you so much for kind of highlighting the relationship the word privilege has with kind of other concepts um I think it's really really important to understand that early on and just from 
listening to your personal life, it sounds like the universe has kind of been pushing you and and prodding you to where you are right now with you know your experiences with your parents and the research that you've done and the communities that you've been involved with has kind of all led into this um research that you're doing now into privilege loss so that's really really interesting um speaking of privilege loss uh I'd love to hear from you um just your thesis or your theory behind you know if we do want to become uh, uh open empathetic and a society where inequity doesn't have isn't so present that privilege loss actually is a key part of that would you be able to kind of highlight the relationship between a world that it sounds like we all want to live in and this concept of privilege loss yeah 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 Hey, I hope we all want to live in it. I'm not so sure. I think some people really do enjoy uh, strict hierarchies. Um, and I mean, plenty of people do. I've, I've definitely talked to plenty of people who do. Um, but for yes, I think for, for if you at least nominally are interested in, in a more equal world, I think, um, yeah, privilege is, is a really important thing to contend with. Like I say, the way I view it, it it's inextricably tied to this idea of inequality. It's a little difficult um, for to to get into that discussion sometimes because of the, the the many different ways that privilege is talked about socially that can kind of diffuse it of its of its power there to be an examination of inequality for example um a lot of the time people use it uh to mean simply like a, a good thing like um you know it's a it's a privilege to be on this podcast right now um mm-hmm. in my definition i shared before it's, it's not it's 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 it's, it's it's a very pleasant thing. It's lovely. I'm enjoying talking to you. I feel very fortunate to have been asked. Um, but it's I wouldn't call it a privilege following that other definition. People will often say stuff like, it's been a privilege to work with these fine people, or uh, it was a privilege to meet uh, Amal. Um, and I think when we're using it like that, which is probably, probably, I don't know, and I haven't checked this, but quantitatively is probably the most often way it's used in kind of everyday conversation. And I think that's a problem um, because that means it's a good thing. That's giving the word the connotation of being a positive thing. It was a privilege mm-hmm. to meet you. I like you. You're saying it's good. Um, so therefore, we, we're saying privilege is just a, a synonym for a good thing or good fortune. And this can lead people to, and I've had many, many people uh, make this point when, when, you know, with this, with this research, that they're like, hey, you know, the answer to inequality is to give people more privilege. People who don't currently have privilege, give them more privilege. But if you're thinking of privilege as inequality, that doesn't make sense. You can't give people more inequality as a solution to inequality. Mm-hmm. So. This idea of privilege is the private law. It's the administrative tool of inequality. It's the law or the norm that determines this identity category gets this and this identity category doesn't. So you can't give people more of that uh, and, and empower those who are currently you know, not getting it. So in this definition of, of privilege, if you want more equality, it's about changing that kind of axis of power from, a, from one of a, a vertical, you know, oppressor oppressed to a horizontal shared mm-hmm. co-governance you know equal now that's you know so many of the of our social movements and you mentioned the isms uh, social movements built around an ism um, are about changing that power dynamic you know socially from 
there'll be say you know uh, male gender um, privileged and and female in this uh, disadvantaged position or white race and uh, people of color whatever it might be and they're moving that from the vertical to the horizontal and all of the tensions and conflicts we have there because it's this relative shift so some are going to based on their identity category are going to relatively have more access to social resources for example more pay or for example the right to vote or for example the ability to go to this school or for example whatever it is and other people are relatively going to lose their monopoly on that or relatively lose their larger slice of the pie so that's kind of the, the dynamic that i'm working with around privilege and and equality um and sorry i talked so long i can't even remember your question but what you were asking about <laughs> I love that you really took us on a wonderful tangent because it just highlighted to me actually how problematic it is the way that we normally use the word privilege. And when you were saying, you know, you were unsure quantitatively if that how it's actually used, but anecdotally, I can back that up. The you know the way that privilege is framed as a positive thing, and that does become problematic when you're trying to think about well, how do we level the playing field in the way that we normally talk about privilege and use it, it's not helpful towards actually finding solutions to leveling that playing field. So if the solution isn't actually focusing on giving more privilege to those who currently don't have it, um, it's more about privilege loss from those who do have that privilege at the moment. Is that kind of where you're going with your thesis, Thomas, if I'm on the right following correctly? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. If you can think of that balance changing, then, you know, one side of the identity category is going to have relative uh, gain. The other side's going to have relative loss. But they're not gaining. Um, here's the difficulty of the, the definition of the term. They'd be gaining more access to social resources, whether material or symbolic, for that identity category. And the other side of the identity category would be relatively losing access to um, that social resource or not necessarily i mean when we say it like that they, it sounds like oh now suddenly you can't breathe the air or you can't have access to you can't vote because someone else can vote and it's not that way it's not like some zero-sum game where just because you know let's use voting rights um suffragette movement and getting voting rights for women didn't take voting rights away from me they still had they you know they'd have a vote but they'd have a relative less share of the pie because the pie had been larger. So it's, and this is kind of where it's going. A lot of the fears that um, different identity groups will have around privilege loss is the fear, they're fearful they're losing their proportionate advantage over others. And that's where, that's where people get really worried. Like, yeah. When I, when I think about what you've just said, I think it's actually quite an emotional process and you definitely see that fear come through in terms of fragility. Like what I'm thinking about what's coming um, front to mind um, at the moment is the reaction to, because it was recently to Wiki or Te Reo Māori and um, Whitaker's the, the chocolate factory, they uh, released a special edition of their creamy um, chocolate. And instead of saying like creamy milk, it said um, meraka kirimi. So it said creamy milk, but in te reo Māori. And um, 
you know, there was a huge backlash, obviously a big support, but again, there was that very fragile response that came through and a lot of, you know, following the themes of, well, are we all expected to have, to, to speak te reo Māori? Why is it being shoved down our throats? This is New Zealand, not Aotearoa. And so when when you were talking about this fear um, of privilege loss, I just couldn't help but think of that because to me it sounds like um, fear being disguised by this fragility and this anger, but I think there's actually a lot of fear um, underneath all of that. But I'd love to hear your, your take on it, especially because you actually research privilege loss. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think the fear is real. Um, but I think so. One of the ways, um, so the way I've researched this was was to um, I'd call them interviews, but they're not really. They're more sort of story story sharing, and um, just with a wide variety of people. Um, many of them on the internet, many of them in person, different countries, lots of different identity categories. Um, for people who don't know what I mean by that, I'd say different people who uh, have different racial identities, gender identities, sexual orientation, religions, uh, citizenship statuses, housing statuses, um, uh, prison you know, statuses. There's been some homeless people, uh, you know, inmates, millionaires, celebrities, you know, a variety of different people from a variety of different identity categories. And what we do is we go in the process, we go through their life um, and looking at the, the different identity categories, the different allocations of privilege and the different uh, instances of privilege loss. And the idea here is to focus in on the different instances of privilege loss to work out what are some common human experiences of, of dealing with it, um, mm -hmm. both in terms of privilege losses that have come uh, against someone's will. So something that's happened to someone, like a context has changed or maybe something, an identity category with them, them has changed. Maybe they've come out and changed their public-facing uh, sexual orientation category and, and are dealing with different social treatments for that. Or maybe a law has changed. You know, again, it could be a law around you know same-sex marriage, or or it could be a, a law around whatever it might be. Or a norm has changed. These things are constantly changing. So there's one of the the guiding principles of the project was. There's no such thing as privileged people and unprivileged people. Every single person, you know, really, I don't know from the moment they're born, but certainly from the moment they're, they're um, uh, wrapped around by a series of social structures, they are then experiencing different identity categories and different privileges allocated to them. So age is one, you know, time is real. Like we can't, none of us escape time, um, you know. So as we go through time, as we age, we're allocated by the social structures around us, different privileges, where our first one will be from our parents. You know, um, you're going to treat a baby differently to a toddler, treat a toddler differently to a kid, a kid differently to a teenager, a teenager differently to an adult. And at each stage, they're going to assume, you know, be granted different advantages and they're going to have others taken away. Now, this is traumatic. This can be traumatic for people, you know, uh, some well-known ones in society are when a professional person retires and uh, they lose the privileges attached to their vocational life. And that's a really difficult process for a lot of people. It's a grieving time. Uh, for a lot of people transitioning from being a teenager to an adult and losing the privileges of maybe having their parents look after them, if that's their situation, um, is another one. But they're assuming other privileges, for example, the privilege to vote. You know, we might call it a right, but it, it's actually an unshared 
resource. So we could also call it a privilege. In fact, I'd argue we'd more accurately call voting rights voting privileges because they're not allowable to all. They're only allowable to certain identity categories, mm -hmm. in this case, defined by age. So my point here is that like everyone's got the same experience of this. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's got the same experience at all because there's really big ticket, super, like, super consequential you know, social structures, especially around white privilege, especially around male privilege, especially around heterosexual privilege, Christian privilege, whatever it might be, um, the privileges of uh, the geopolitical privileges of living from, um, you know, wealthy countries, which is the minority of the world, this tiny minority dictating a, a lot of the geopolitics of the rest of the planet. So, you know, there's all these things happening. But what about that human experience? So I've been really interesting interviewing people. I, I try and go in with an open mind because I don't know what they're going to say. You know, let's say I'm talking with you and I say, okay, Amal, I'm, I'm looking at you. I'm going to uh, judge from the visual cues that you're of African descent. I'm going to judge from your accent that you're a naturalized Kiwi. Um, I'm going to judge from, you know, these kind of things, right? And then I, you know, if I'm not careful, I'm going to start forming in my mind a set of ideas about the type of privileges that might be impactful in your life. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I'll get you know, white privilege might be one here, or you know, I'm, I'm going to go, okay, your name and your dress, I think it's probably Muslim. So I'm going to say there's maybe like Christian privileges going to play a role here. I don't know. But if I do that, I might not necessarily listen and hear accurately to your experience of where privileges have played a role in your life. Those might be ones, but they might not, and other ones might be it. So when I've been meeting with people and talking with them, I really try and read all that stuff as best I can and just listen to the experience and leave really open and guiding questions. And it's been so interesting where people go. A lot of the times they are more like common humanity ones, like age, age and time and the processes of um, – you know, around those kind of biological parts of life, like uh, parenting, uh, our relationship to family, um, going through the different uh, statuses and, and with the different privileges allocated to us through those phases of life. And then other times it'll be really big ticket, like maybe someone um, working in indigenous governance who is working for an autonomous, self-governing uh, indigenous you know, government that has to negotiate and collaborate with a settler colonial government and then you've got a settler colonial government who has formerly or for the last 150 200 years regarded this first nation or this indigenous government as lesser than and regarded their relationship to them as hierarchical and paternalistic and now suddenly they're transitioning from that hierarchical to the horizontal mm -hmm. and they're going okay now we've got to we've got to collaborate with this as an equal footed negotiating partner how do we do that how do we collaborate and what I'm finding fascinating is drawing those links to say, okay, the same kind of fears, the same kind of um, uh, kind of speed wobbles, the same kind of um, strategies for denial, the same kind of strategies for deflection might be happening between the settler colonial government as they're coming to terms with indigenous co-governance, as it is for a mother who's coming to terms with her 21-year-old daughter, who's now an independent woman who's living on her own. And the mother turns up at her flat and starts rearranging, you know, the cutlery. And the daughter says, hey, what are you doing? And the mum's like, well, you know, I'm still in charge. And the daughter's like, no, you're not. This is my house. We're co-governance. We're equal adults now. Mm -hmm. You know, there's tension there. And for a lot of people, they, they'll be, they may, I don't know where they're going to feel it. You've got to listen to them to hear it. But each of those can cause them feelings of discomfort, unease, trauma. Um, you know, it's the process of privilege loss that people are going through. 
and that's what this project's really about. Well, thank you so much for really unpacking that idea of privilege loss and the tensions and the emotions or just the human experience that goes along with that. And a question that I have now after hearing that as well, in your opinion, what kind of internal work uh, someone needs to do to be okay with that privilege loss? Wow, um, great question. I think, I mean, it would depend what that person wants to, like where they want to be. Like, I don't want to assume that everybody wants to move to equality and co-governance because like I said, a lot of people That's don't. That's very valid, you know, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> You know, I think they should, but like, hey, that's um, you know. So if let's say an example with the with the mother and the daughter, um, let's say the mother genuinely wants to move to at least they, you know, maybe the mother doesn't want to totally lose some sort of hierarchical power over her daughter. Maybe she feels like that's her that's her right in life, and she wants that, but she does want to move to a more horizontal kind of collaborative relationship with her daughter. She wants to respect her as a sovereign entity and be able to negotiate things about their shared life together as two equals rather than the mums would going. So if she really wants to do that, then some of the internal work um, would be around, okay, well, why am, I, why am I suddenly in the kitchen rearranging the spoons? Why did I think I have that, that this is just my right to do this? Um, why is you know why is my daughter annoyed at this? Why are these feelings of um, what am I feeling now? And I think the internal work could be you know as any internal work, um, you know just like identifying your feelings, naming your feelings, trying to trying to have some um, autonomy over uh, what you want to do with these feelings, which are very real. And then finding a way, you know, using communication with the other partner, finding a way to move towards your shared desirable outcome i think a lot of the problem whether it's you know the mother and the daughter there or the settler colonial government and the indigenous government there or many many other examples of these kind of um equilibrium changes the balance changes a lot of the problem is people aren't clearly stating what their desired outcome is where they want to get to and mm. uh, maybe not being super honest about that and potentially not being super honest with themselves about the feelings they're having because a lot of the time these are ugly feelings we don't want to sit there and, you know, go, hey, I've got this oppressor relationship over you and I'm uncomfortable with you, you know, uh, changing the balance to a collaborative one because I was kind of hoping that I could stay in charge here, you know, and now suddenly I'm not, you know, it might be that. Or you might actually be like, look, buddy, I really want to lose my oppressor in charge position here. I really, really do. But I'm really struggling with the process because suddenly I'm feeling disempowered because literally I'm being disempowered. I'm having a less proportionate power. So I'm having to acquiesce more to you. I'm having to respect and listen more. And I'm not used to that. I've been conditioned to tell people what to do, not to listen to what they want. There's a lot of changes there. And that's, that's, that's hard work, you know. Um, so your question, like, what's the internal work? I'd say, like, have a clear goal of what you want to achieve. Be honest about what you want to achieve it and then be honest about the feelings that are in the way because this is where it got me you know i i did really honestly want to move to canada and um really support uh the work uh of my wife at the time uh, you know in indigenous self-governance 
Um, I wanted to be humbled. I wanted to learn new skills. I wanted to lose and refuse a lot of the the privileges of being a you know in a real status position in, in Aotearoa as a university uh, lecturer. And I did gave that up. And then I was like, oh, kind of sucks not having that stuff because it was really sweet. You know, it mm -hmm. was it was cushy. It was cool. It was convenient. And now life's harder. And dang, you know, like. I, I'm kind of feeling cranky about that. I'm feeling resentful about that. Um, so, you know, in my case, I had to be really clear, like, okay, well, why am I doing this? What do I want to achieve here? Um, you know, and I think if you don't have that, it'd be just really easy to get lost in the resentment, lost in the indignation. And when you're lost in resentment and indignation, you are, a, you're, you're, you're just a bomb waiting to explode. And if mm -hmm. someone else comes along and says, Hey buddy, I feel your pain. And by the way, the problem is that group of people over there, or the problem is this, you know, government rule or whatever it is, get with me and we're going to blow that up or we're going to, you know, oppress these people and that'll solve your problem. You're so vulnerable for that because your indignation's real, your fear's real, your anger's real, but there's not a really clear idea about why it is and what it is you want to achieve. So I think we're seeing a lot of that around the world right now. And I think, um, I think like, you know, fair enough that people feel feel these these negative uh, human emotions. I mean, we we do. So we need better language um, around how we go through the process of these power dynamic changes. Um, and really, this project is is just trying to help people do that. Trying to help myself do that. Trying to help people do that. Because we need to do it well. You know, if we want to be more equal, we've got to transition well. Transitioning well means some people are going to relatively lose out. We've got to look after them. Some people have told me, like, hey, man, what are you doing, like a welfare program for privileged people, you know, to, to, <laughs> to get through this? And I'm like, nah, it's like maybe, but it's actually it's a welfare program for everybody because we're all involved in this. You know, if we don't get that process right, no one wins. And the big ticket one, you know, this move to – refusing our consumer privileges for the sake of uh, planetary sustainability you know that's one we actually got to do right and at the moment um, it's not looking good because there's not a very clear language around how to give up this entitlement that a lot of us feel that we're entitled to consume so much more than the sustaining capacity of the world and so much more than other people can. We don't even see it as an entitlement and it's a privilege, but we're like, that's when we've got to refuse. How can we refuse that and not just get mired down in resentment and indignation? Wow. Thank you for kind of um, exposing this underbelly of privilege and I think that's probably one of the reasons why it's so hard to talk about to begin with is because it's a hard emotional work you know especially when you're directly confronting these ugly emotions that we you know we're conditioned to run away from not know how to grapple with in a healthy way so we can have a productive insight or productive conversation on the other side we're not conditioned to do that and so you know to we try to deny the existence of those ugly emotions through fragility through privileged affliction um and you're so right to do that internal work we actually just need to be okay with those ugly emotions but then how do we talk about it in a 
in a healthy way and how do we frame it in a way where it actually encourages people to stay in that conversation. Um, so I'm really interested and excited to read your final works whenever that um, comes to fruition because it is really, really important. Um, and, you know, for me, usually I am a very hot-headed person, um, you know, especially when talking about things like racism and someone doesn't see it. Um, I, you know, I do get very emotional about it and very angry. It's like, well, you have the privilege of learning about it, not even experiencing it. And so for me, actually, um, your insights has kind of offered me an opportunity to learn how to be soft and learn how to kind of see it on the other side. And that's something that is so strange to even say aloud but you know because in my head it's so black and white and if you don't understand racism what you know I don't I'm trying to let go of this association now but definitely you know a couple of years ago Amar would have been like if you don't want to associate with or learn about racism or even acknowledge your privilege you are a horrible person but the way that you've spoken about this privilege Ross you've actually really humanized it for me and you know made me realize that it would be quite scary because it, it probably would feel like the carpet is just being completely pulled from you and now you have to not only learn to deal with these ugly emotions but kind of construct a new truth while at the same time sharing this pie that you've always had with other people. Um, it is quite a lot. And I think I've only been able to understand that when I think about the privileges that I do have that I will eventually have to let go of as well. Um, and also you've brought up another excellent point of that, even in our one being, you know, even if we have, lack of privileges there will be other spaces where we are quite privileged and that for me as a black um muslim woman i struggle to think oh yeah there actually are some spaces where i do have a lot of privilege because i think back in the day i was so attached to well i don't have anything <laughs> and i'm so angry about it um but thank you so much for kind of humanizing that um process of privilege loss and I honestly wish I could keep on talking to you forever and ever um though we're actually coming to end of time so I'd love to end with this one question which I like to end with everyone which is um you know you have the power for one day you have the power to change the the world and it can be in a very structural physical way or it can be more of a cultural thing but you can change this one thing and whatever this one thing is it will lead to a equitable and accepting and open society so thomas what is your one thing dang um <laughs> uh, God. okay and advertising and the culture industries. All, all uh, media dedicated to the creation of false needs. I think that's, I think that like we, I mean, conditioning's real. You know, it's kind of to your point before, like we, we, we are what we've been conditioned to be and, you know, we fight against it. And that's that's the struggle everyone's got to to live up to some ideal uh, and and follow the path that they see as fit and to decondition, but the the conditioning power of our false needs 
is uh, for me it's the it's the death of the planet right now and it's not just advertising we're not talking about the ads on tv show or whatever it's it's the whole hollywood a lot of the music industry even and i'm not saying that like we need to get away from creativity from from visual and and, and sonic amazing creativity there's so much creativity but just don't dedicate it to creating something we don't need shift our attention to what we do need we don't need much you know the great secret of the planet right now it's not overpopulation i mean there is enough resource to go around there's enough for all of us and then so many more we have got enough we have enough trees we have enough food we have enough water what we don't have enough for is people having more than they need mm. we reduce it down to just what we need we share it around now what's the biggest driver of making us think that we're entitled to take more than we need it's advertising and it's the culture industries, it's the movies, it's that whole lifestyle thing. And we don't need it. And we're better without it. We might be smellier, but we'll be more beautiful, you know, <laughs> and we'll be more connected. And, and we'll just like, it will be happier because we'll be living on a sustainable planet where we can plan 50 generations into the future for, you know, all the other stuff. And we'll dedicate all of that energy to other, you know, pursuits like knowledge, science, communion, spirituality, understanding the trees. And then we can gain some real wisdom and just forget all the status anxiety. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the things we're talking about, oppressions, racism, sexisms, and all that, they come down to status and hierarchy. And a lot of that status and hierarchy is just about getting more than what someone else has, and which is by definition more than what you need. But you know what? We keep seeing it. Social science is telling us again and again and again. Once you've got what you need, that's where your highest bar of happiness comes. But you don't get more happy after that. You got your happy when you got what you need, when you got people, love, food, water, air, and there is more than enough of that to go around everybody. And it's got nothing to do with race, and it's got nothing to do with gender, and it's got nothing to do with any of the other stuff that we use to divide us, because we're just a biological entity that just eats food, you know, shits it out, has water, needs sunshine and air. Okay, we got it. That we actually got what we need. Let's just stop. Um, getting all the stuff that we think we want that's bad for us. And that's why I'd end advertising. And I apologize to all my old colleagues uh, in the great schools of advertising creative industries across Aotearoa. <laughs> hey. Sorry, not sorry. I love, yeah, sorry, not sorry. I love that one thing. I am so here for it. I'm sick and tired of being fed lies. Um, and you don't realize how powerful it is until you kind of start to wake up and you're like, oh God, it's everywhere. So I think that is a, powerful one thing and it has been a pleasure not a privilege it has been a pleasure to talk to you Thomas. thank you so much <laughs> pleasure's mine thank you Mel. thank you for tuning in into another episode of headscarfs and good yarns to keep spinning the yarns let us know your thoughts you can find us on facebook and instagram at headscarfs and good yarns or email us at headscarfs and good yarn at gmail.com this podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.